Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 97 with Daniel Gritzer from Serious Eats, part two of our conversation. You know, I have a recipe for romesco sauce. And for years, in, you know, cooking in New York City and seeing recipes here, everybody, it's roasted red bell peppers, roasted red bell peppers, roasted red bell peppers. And you just, you know, if you don't, if you don't stop to dig into it, that may, it may, one may just assume that romesco sauce is in part based on roasted red bell peppers. And it's not roasted red bell peppers. Not that it's, there's nothing wrong with using roasted red bell peppers. It's an entirely rational choice when you cannot get the peppers that are, are more commonly used in Spain. It's, a, it's, a, it's an entirely different pepper. It's not a bell pepper. It's not a fresh pepper. It's a dried pepper. It's not roasted. It's, you get that complex flavor from the fact that it's a dried pepper. The point isn't that you have to use the Nyora pepper, but it's helpful to know that, isn't it? This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant unless you count Burger King or Boston Market. This week, I have part two of my conversation with Daniel Gritzer, culinary director at SeriousEats.com. I've been a big fan of both Serious Eats and the Food Lab for a while and was really excited to talk to Daniel about his work there. We had a long discussion, so I broke our conversation into two parts. Part one aired last week and is linked in the show notes. On this episode, we discuss scaling recipes, cooking on a boat, the original pepper used in romesco sauce, atolles, and being thoughtful when developing recipes. We also tackle the controversial topic of Maryland crab cakes and Old Bay. Where do you stand on the topic? And a reminder that you can help support our podcast and the Chefs Without Restaurants Network by donating through our Patreon. Monthly support starts at just $5 a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash chefs without restaurants to find exclusive recipes and see our tiered rewards. And now on with the show. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week. I don't feel good about this. I don't think this is a good way to go about this. Like, let's not play this game anymore. Do you have any recipes that are notoriously hotly debated? Like, is there something you can remember where you posted a recipe and people were like, not that it didn't work. And maybe maybe it's not uh, a recipe. You know, it's like when someone posts like how to clean cast iron. That's like one of those things that always is like a hot topic. Do you have a lot yeah. of those like in the comment section or on Twitter where people are like, I can't believe that's how you would make this. Can you think of anything? Oh, yeah. It happens a lot. <laughs> it happens. Actually, Maryland, you're in you're, right, Maryland. Yeah. So my mom grew up on the Eastern Shore. I grew up in Brooklyn, so I can't lay any, you know, direct claim to <laughs> to a kind of um, – Maryland life, but I, I definitely got it from my mom. Growing up, eating crabs, 
the value of a human in my family was directly connected to how like well and quickly they could they could clean <laughs> a crab and uh i did a crab cake recipe uh maryland crab cake recipe and um one of my prized cookbooks in my you know quite large cookbook collection is this little community cookbook from galena maryland from the 60s or something that uh obviously among other things has crab cake recipes in it and so when i was doing research on my maryland crab cake recipe that was certainly one of the places i looked and um you brought this up already old bay these old recipes didn't have old bay in them and uh, of course i was aware i love old bay i have nothing against old bay <laughs> but i ended up going down the road of doing my own spicing based you know, more along the lines of kind of what I was seeing in these old recipes and not just using Old Bay to sort of add all of that flavor to the crab cake. And it set off like all sorts of arguments in the comments because there were people coming and going, I'm from Maryland and this recipe is BS. There's no Old Bay. It's not a Maryland crab cake, period, the end, case closed. And I was like, well, that's funny because I've based this recipe on like, research that is really clearly showing that in your very state in, in kind of in the heart, you know, one of the, one of the hearts, I don't know what the heart of Maryland is, but like the Eastern shore is, shore is certainly like a, a cultural, an important cultural part of, of Maryland. There's no old Bay just going back, you know, what is it? 50 years, 60 years. Um, yeah. I don't know when old Bay was started. Yeah. So, and, and it seemed to st- I never fully explored this after, but it seemed to kind of emerge that, that there was two things. There was like, when did Old Bay really become a dominant brand in Maryland? And also regional, that there were there were possibly regional variations where in some parts of Maryland, like in the Baltimore area, like if you didn't put Old Bay, like, yeah, starting at some point in time, you were not doing it right. But in other parts of Maryland, that wasn't necessarily the case. And, you know, I think probably Old Bay slowly has sort of <laughs> spread its its uh, its dominion <laughs> on the crab cake realm. But that one was really fascinating to me because I was like, I've got some pretty good primary uh, texts here to counter this emphatic argument that I have, you know, this Yankee has swooped in and completely disrespected the crab cake. So that was, that was, um, that's one example. It happens a lot. Well, crab cakes still go, I mean, it's like, is it deep fried? Is it pan fried? Is it broiled in the oven? Is there any kind of, like people say like, I don't put any filler. It's like, there needs to be some kind of breading in there. Like it, like for me, even if it's just like a scant amount, like something to hold it together, it is just Mm -hmm. too wet if you don't. Um, but people argue me. So mine, uh, has old Bay in it. Uh, I use panko, which, you know, none of your recipes would have because nobody used panko in the sixties or whatever. I just find it tedious to cut white bread. You know, all the old recipes are like, take white bread, cut the crust off, cut it in small little things. But when your recipe is panko also. Really? Yeah. I wasn't just recreating those recipes, but I was using them as a touchstone. So when I saw those old recipes and they didn't have Old Bay, I was like, well, I this is a sign to me that I can do a real Maryland crab cake, something that's honoring, you know, is respectful to the tradition without Old Bay. Like Old Bay doesn't have to be in one. If you want to put it, that's awesome. Like it's delicious, <laughs> yeah. but you don't have to. 
what, you know, that's, that is not in and of itself an off- you know, offensive move. And then for the exact reason you're articulating, I, I grabbed the panko because it's like, well, what do we probably want some kind of white bread? What is panko? It's, it's really fluffy dried white bread. It's like, it's awesome filler. <laughs> like, it is. Panko. Well, and it's easier when you're doing big batch. So one of my claims to fame or whatever, I guess not fame because nobody knows about it. I worked for Sodexo, you know, huge contract food service company. Um, I developed their Maryland crab cake recipe, which is used globally. So like if you were at a business dining account in Tokyo and they were using the recipes, which, you know, all accounts are supposed to use, uses that, you know, and one of the things is you have large accounts. I worked at a place where we had, you know, 750 people there eating all the time. We can't be cutting bread to toss in. It's like my cooks need to use like a five pound bag of panko or something. We're mixing it in this big thing. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was my, this was my only glimpse into test kitchen life, which I'm sure is your life all the time. But I, I was working at an operation, but they sent me down to Gaithersburg where their North American headquarters is. And I went to the test kitchen for a week and I didn't realize I would spend five days working on like three recipes, right? Like we're going to make the crab cakes. We're going to take volume measures of everything. We're going to take weight measures. We're going to make the crab cakes at 350, 375, 400. We're going to scoop them in three ounce, four ounce, five ounce. Okay. We like it when you use one pound, but when we scale it up to like 20 pounds, like does the old bay blow it out and we need to like reduce it down? It was fun, but I can't imagine doing that every day. It was super interesting. But yeah, I was given the job of creating the Maryland crab cake recipe, which they have in their database. So that is really cool. It's yeah, it is really these kinds of things. The scaling thing that you're talking about is really an interesting one. Like some recipes you could scale infinitely, right? Like, and they'll just keep working. They'll just keep working. Like it's a lot of them just, don't. And that's the thing with contract food is like you're scaling to the umpteenth level. Like anytime you're getting into cooking for a hospital, a business, a retirement community, like you're you're making hundreds of things. It's not like home or even a restaurant where we're doing, you know, 40 covers tonight. When you, you know, if you're doing big catering events, like when you're making 400 crab cakes, like the scaling might be off when you're making, you know. Yeah soup yeah, for 600 people up. like that might not you know cooks would come and say like this calls for two and a half cups of cloves is that right it's like no 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 like no like but you know if you had like half a teaspoon of cloves in something then the scaling right. is going to tell you that it's like two and a half cups and it's like that's i, I just don't feel like that's going to be a good thing like let's start <laughs> slowly and and get there, you know, get closer. Um, and that's another thing that like you have to teach people when they're doing high volume cooking. Yeah, some of those things I can't even imagine. I mean, I don't with what I do, I don't deal with recipes getting multiplied to that level, which is really like a fascinating window into how wonky stuff can get if you scale that much. Some you know, so you see it on even smaller levels. You know, websites food websites you're often talking about like you know what would be cool functionality like you know if we could just have a wish list and you know unlimited time and resources what would be cool and one that comes up a lot is like would it be nice if it you know you could just scale like you could just the the user could just enter in the number of servings and the recipe would like automatically scale and i'm always like don't do that please don't do that because if you build the tool it implies to the user that it works but with most of my recipes, I would be very uncomfortable even suggesting 
that that works. But that's how all this software works. You know, like the software we had, we had a, a food, it was called food management and the recipe database was there. And every time you just change the number of servings, it scaled it. But we had to train all of our chefs really well to look at that and and see. But a lot of that, that's why they're trying to do it in the test kitchen and kind of err on the side of lighter on some things that they know would blow out. Like some things are going to be fine. Like the onions are going to be fine. And I bring up cloves because think about like how powerful they are. Yeah, cloves make things nasty. Yeah, fast. it takes some yeah. intuitiveness to it. There's a lot of things that we've done that I'm like, yeah, the scaling is not right on that. Is the idea that they sort of, they get it to work up to a certain sort of number of multiples. And then it's like, look, if you're going to take this serving for 20 and make it servings for 400, you, like whoever's on site needs to understand that they mean they they may need to make some uh, you know on the fly decisions to sort of not do anything stupid. Is that the idea? Yeah, and the software ties into like ordering and everything, so it's this whole thing that like now I take this recipe and it's going to be for thirty people. It's been costed out at the the home office level, mm-hmm. so we know that you know, it's, this is how much it costs. So then it gives you like a shopping list. So when you're ordering from Cisco or whoever, so now I'm making 500 portions of lasagna and I know that it's going to, you're going to need like two cases of ground beef and you're going to need this and that. And it's scaled that recipe out from a 20, you know, 20 cut lasagna to like five pans of 20 cut lasagna. But you have your grocery list for Cisco saying you need to order two cases of ground beef. It's really one and a half, but you're going to need two cases, right? So you do your whole week's worth of ordering within that system, and then it adds it all together. And then it kind of gives you your shopping list of everything you need to buy all in one shot, kind of adding it together across the board. Yeah. So that's like a whole different level of cooking. And that's where I've spent a good deal of my career is like high volume cooking. Yeah, that is a whole, I've, long time ago, I, I, I worked, did some catering type work, which is high volume, but not, not, uh, not anything on that level, you know, of um, having, having stuff figured out like that. It's also, you, you know, you said before, um, so much of what you do, you're in different people's kitchens all the time. And that's got to be. Yeah, you plan for worst case scenario, let me tell you. Because you obviously you come with your knives. I bring every bit of cooking equipment except a stove and an oven. So, I mean, that is the variable there. The question I ask is really, how many ovens do you have? Like, I have one oven at my house at home. So many people, especially as you move up in, like, wealth and class, people yeah, these have, days have two have ovens, which is... One, yeah. Which is nice. Um, and that that's where it gets challenging for bigger parties. You know, like a party for six or eight is fine. But I do, you know, dinners for 12 to 15. And like if everything's in the oven, it's like, well, you need to have two ovens. And if you don't, then we can't have a roasted ribeye and roasted potatoes and roasted Brussels sprouts. Like you've got two racks in there, right? We're going to have to do mm-hmm. something on the stove or in a pressure mm-hmm. cooker. But if you've got two ovens, then we can do that. Um, but for for... Everything else, I bring every pot, pan, utensil I need. I even have portable convection ovens I can bring with me. I have portable induction burners. I don't usually need them. But you still get into these weird scenarios with counter space and Mm -hmm. just, you know, they've got a coil, uh, old uh, stove with the the coil burners or glass top. That's brutal. Uh, But it's, Do Do they send you, um, like, a photo of their space? A lot of chefs ask for that, and that might be something I do. I haven't had any issues with that. 
I guess you don't institute new protocols until you have an issue too many times, right? At this point, you've probably, you know, you, you've, <laughs> yeah, you've done I've it seen it all. Yeah. yeah, you've probably, there's probably very little you would walk into where you weren't like. A boat. I, someone asked me to cater on a boat. Uh, they were doing like a sunset, a sunset cruise on the Potomac. And I thought boat, like yacht or something. And they said, yeah, there's a grill there you can use and um, you can bring a portable oven if you need it. And I got there, the grill was like the size of a 10 inch dinner plate, like round, right? And I had to cook every <laughs> everything on this. So I bring the oven and the captain of the boat is like, no, no, like that's going to blow the generator. Like you can't bring this on the boat. So you have the grill. So I see the grill and it has like a propane tank, like the mini you know, little one that I use for my blowtorch. And I'm going to have to, I have to cook like scallops. I have to do like ribeye steaks. They want mashed potatoes. Thank God I made them ahead of time. But I'm like reheating mashed potatoes in a frying pan on the grill. And where are you holding everything while you got this one little grill? I'm just wrapping everything in foil. And... Uh, I, there wasn't even a work surface. Like when I got there, there was a table in the galley area, but they took the table out to eat. So I was able to prep on it. But once the first course came, they carried that out. And I was on my knees using like the bench as my, like, like I've got a cut. So I'm on my knees using my cutting board. And then the captain comes out. He's like, you can't have that on there. You're going to like ruin the upholstery. I'm like, like, what, what the fuck do you want me to do? Like, I was just like, over it. And I said, never again. But, and the customer loved it and it went off without a hitch. And now I get calls all the time. Like my friend is renting a a boat to do a cruise on the Potomac. I'm like, I just, I can't (laughs) like, Like, unless it's like the, you know, mansion yachts and there's like a full kitchen. I just can't do it. So I've kind of seen it all at that point. That really is seeing it all. I mean, that's about as, that's about as scrappy as you can get in terms of figuring out how Luxury, yeah, but scrappy. It's kitchen, kitchen impossible. Yeah, but I had never had. I mean, beautiful. Who doesn't want to have like a beautiful sunset cruise out on the Potomac? You know, like he stopped right in front of the Lincoln Memorial at sunset. These people brought a professional photographer with them to do a photo shoot. Um, and I'm just kind of like chilling, you know, it's not a bad life, right? Like previously I had an office that overlooked a dumpster. Um, and now, you know, like <laughs> even I'm a little stressed. They offer me a glass of champagne and I can have some champagne and, you know, hang out on the water. Like, life's pretty good you know yeah as long as you can pull it off i know i haven't been in uh, restaurants for a long time but i know that as stressful as those moments are that's also like in some ways those kinds of challenges are the things that you feed off of the most in this line of work where most definitely it's like yeah Especially once you're done with it, like when you're sitting when you're in the done, car, you're, like, that was cool. uh, you're sitting in the car and you're like, oh, the, the endorphins start to, the adrenaline starts to wear off and you're just like, huh, oh. like I'll never do it again. But, but you know, it was fun. Yeah, it's I, a don't, story. I don't want this to be like my every, every gig, but like that was, yeah, it's a story. And I survived. I used to work the, the pasta station at this Italian restaurant and, you know, pasta service in an Italian restaurant at lunch is brutal like that's like every table every chair is ordering pasta like you're you are the show and it's compressed into a like two-hour window like dinners can be marathons and they can be rough but like usually they're more you know a little bit more spread out so it's a little bit more of an endurance game whereas like lunch was just like it all just came it was a it was a tsunami it was like a tidal wave it all just comes at once and it's all pasta. And when I first started, it was, you know, 
horrible. It was just like every day was painful. And um, I remember just getting to the point where like you get so good at it that you, f- you feel like you're in the matrix, right? You're like, time doesn't exist for me. I see everything. Like I don't, the world is not photons. The world is like, <laughs> you know, quarks. Like you're whatever, in that zone. Whatever. Yeah. You are in that zone. You're just like, you can't, you can't, you can't possibly. And then you start to wish for more. You're like, give me the worst thing ever because that's what I want to do today because I want something that tests it's a lame analogy but if you're Neo in the Matrix and you're like once you realize that the whole world is just like you know you can see the zeros and ones then you're like I don't want to just like deal with this one bullet flying at me like bring the whole like bring every army in the world (laughs) I want to see what I can do with this skill (laughs) and that's a cool feeling like it's when you get you know that that kind of moment of of just sort of being at your your most polished and you know for like you that just like every time you walk into a into a new client's place it's like What's it going to be this time? Like, every, this is unknown every time. There's just got to be a... It's a mixed bag. You know what I'll say? My very favorite parties are bachelorette parties because they're fun. They're easygoing. There's a lot of young girls who want really good food, like they know good food. They also pay the best. I think millennials get a bad rap, but millennials are also spending money like they're going to die tomorrow, which isn't the worst thing. Like, I think they, you know, they they, uh, value experiences and recognize that. Like, I'm more likely to get a 25 to 30% tip from them and get stiffed by like a Gen Xer or even a baby boomer, you know, and they're just casual. And it's just like, there's no stress. Like, I come in, it's like, oh, we're having Negronis do you want a Negroni? And then it's like, serve food whenever we're going out to the pool. And then you just like put up some cool food. And like, it's for me, it's just like, ah, like I, I love it. I have a question. We jumped right in the conversation. How did you end up working at Serious Eats? I was an editor at uh, Food and Wine. And um, my food career started in restaurants. And then I um, got a job at Time at New York. And that was not Time at New York was all about going out. So it was restaurants and bars. And it was a really good, it was a great place to learn the, you know, reporting, fact-checking, sort of basic journalistic practices that are a part of, you know, even food writing. And uh, and then um, and then I went to Food and Wine. And so I was a food editor there. And so a lot of, uh, I wasn't in the test kitchen as a test kitchen cook, but I was a recipe editor. And also I had a like monthly column that was sort of like the food nerds column. And that, you know, my thing was, I was always nerding out over everything. And my colleagues who were, it was, I, I really had a great time there. They were, they were always saying like, Daniel, like you, you've done enough research to write, you know, a book on this and you only have three pages, you know, you don't need to go that far down the rabbit hole. And so at a certain point, so actually a, a former food and wine co- colleague of mine who had left tipped me off that he'd seen Kenji posting that he was looking for someone to join him at Serious Seats and expand the recipe program there. And, um, you know, I had been a, a big fan of, of the site already. Like, and so I was like, well, that is a place where I can go down the rabbit hole over and over and over again. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, that's, that's how I ended up at, um, serious eats. 
And I always ask people, like, what are their favorite culinary resources? And while I've said your website's mine, what are your, some of your go-tos? Do you have favorite websites, cookbooks, or just places for inspiration? I'm very proud of my cookbook collection. And the cookbooks I love the most are the ones that I've, like, either picked up while traveling and brought back in my luggage or that I've ordered, you know, some kind of rare book um, that I found online or an old book or something like that, or like the, the Maryland uh, Galena, Maryland uh, community cookbook, these kinds of, these special ones that are, that are, they're full of um, wonderful information that I turn to like again and again and again, and that are, you know, not as common, not that the rarity of them is what makes them special, but just, I think it is very easy, particularly in the, in the, with the internet in a strange, you know, strange way that the internet kind of, in some ways, like it's lived up to its promise and it's also betrayed its promise, which is that everything is on it, but you tend to, you know, the forces that be, you tend to find the same things over and over and over again. And it can feed this sort of echo chamber. You know, you run a search and you get the results you get. And, you know, usually we're pretty happy with those results. Like the it's, it's mostly kind of doing, and, you know, most of the searches I run, the answers I get, I'm satisfied. So it's working for me. But it's also like, if you stop and think about it, it's like, it's, what am I not finding? I have tricks when I'm doing searches on the internet for recipes to get outside of at least like the American search results, not, not secret tricks, just, you know, things to like force, you know, I want to see the recipes for this thing in Italian. Obviously, the powers that be on the internet think <laughs> based on where my IP address is and some other, you know, things that they're going to know about me that I'm looking for English language sources, but I need to get outside of that. I want to, I want to, you know, let's, let's push beyond that. Uh, so the internet's funny in that way. So I, I love those, you know, all of these cookbooks in my collection that just, they just feel like when you're doing something like a crab cake and somebody says, it's not a real crab cake if it doesn't have old bay. I have the resources to say, you know, I respect your opinion about wanting Old Bay in your crab cake, but you're wrong about saying that it has to be in it. And I, and I can prove, I can, you know, <laughs> I've got something to prove this. Um, so I love all of my cookbooks like that. And I think for online, it's, it's case by case for me. I don't have a go-to. You know, there, there are competitors, in, you know, in the sort of food media space that I, that I have lots of respect for and think they do cool work. But if I'm doing recipe research, I'm, you know, I'm often interested to see what some of those, the obvious sites have, but I'm even more interested to see the, the not obvious stuff. And, you know, in particular, like getting my eyes on um, either the print, the printed digital recipes of, um, I did air quotes there, <laughs> uh, printed digital recipes online or videos. And, you know, that's the, the, the video stuff is awesome for recipe research it's super helpful to watch people, particularly if you're doing a recipe, it's like a cuisine, cuisine based in the country of origin, making it not that that's the final word on it, but like, that's, that's way more informative than, and it's also, it's crazy. Cause then you see where the echo chamber, the, the kind of the, the evidence of the echo chamber becomes more obvious because you can read six English language recipes and articles about a dish and they all are kind of different versions of each other. The similarities are striking or there'll be some, something in the technique that's the same, you know, they're, they're not 
plagiarized, but like there's, you can, you can tell they, they've looked at each other or one of yeah. them's looked at the other one. Like there's, these patterns are being uh, repeated in the recipe creation. And then you get outside of that and you see like, you know, whatever the, you know, let's use Italy's example. Like someone in Italy making this thing just doesn't do that thing at all. Right. And it's just like, Oh, that's wild. Like that's completely, you know, it's not wrong, but it's just like pushing, pushing through. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of obviously like criticism of like uh, the idea of authenticity. And I, I think it, it's very important to be careful about, uh, you know, how we frame this stuff, but it's so helpful to be able to look at a recipe from its source or from someone who's represent, you know, a better representative of the source and see what they're doing. And I, that's really, I, I, I really love that. I have, I have so much fun doing it and you can, you know, and you can, I don't speak most of the languages of the world, right? Like, uh, you can do all sorts of great stuff with translation tools. Doing oh yeah, like, Google you know, Translate is amazing. Like the amount of websites that are all just copy and paste the text into my browser and and translate. Yeah, you can say like, I want to do this recipe, or I'm you know I'm researching this recipe. I have an interest in this recipe. If I search for it under its um, oh I, let's use like a Thai like Thai green curry. And I type Thai green curry recipe. Well, I'm definitely getting, you know, English language, probably U.S. based for the most part results, combination of where Google is going to know I am and where, you know, the language I'm using to search. Let's say, okay, I don't want to do that. So I'm going to take the, you know, a lot of times you get the transliteration of the Thai, right? Now, I don't know off the top of my head what um, what the words are for Thai green curry in Thai, but it'll be transliterated and it will be spelled using still the, the Roman alphabet. You know, if you search that, it will still probably kind of force you back to the American results. Well, if you take that transliteration or, you know, Thai green curry, even just in English, and you run it through Google translate into Thai and I can't read Thai but I can copy and paste the result in the Thai alphabet. Then it's really saying to Google, like quit it with these American recipes for Thai green curry. I want to see the Thai versions of this that are on the internet um, and videos. And I love doing stuff like that to inform and enrich what, what I'm looking for. So, you know, I don't have to, you know, I would, I wish I could speak <laughs> every language. That would be great uh, if I had the time to learn, but um, even without that, to, to be able to sort of use these little tricks to, to get outside of the, the, you know, the box that we kind of keep getting put back into through the, you know, the AI. <laughs> yeah. It's going to bump us over to food and wine and all recipes.com. And maybe if serious eats has a Thai green curry recipe, but that's, what's going to yeah, exactly. show up on the top of my feed for sure. Exactly. And I, you know, and I want to look at those, but for a lot of stuff, if it's like a, a, a specific cuisine, I want to get outside of those too. I did, you know, I've, I have a recipe for romesco sauce and for years and, you know, cooking in New York city and seeing recipes here, everybody it's roasted red bell peppers, roasted red bell peppers, roasted red bell peppers. And you just, you know, if you don't, if you don't stop to dig into it, that may, it may, one may just assume that Romesco sauce is in part based on roasted red bell peppers. 
and it's not roasted red bell peppers. Not that it's, there's nothing wrong with using roasted red bell peppers. It's an entirely rational choice when you cannot get the peppers that are, are more commonly used in Spain. It's, a, it's, a, it's an entirely different pepper. It's not a bell pepper. It's not a fresh pepper. It's a dried pepper. It's not roasted. You get that complex flavor from the fact that it's a dried pepper. So it's like stuff like that. I've never heard that in my life, and I make romesco all the time. That's that's should, amazing. Yeah, you check out my recipe. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, the point isn't that you have to. It, the point isn't that you have to use the Nyora pepper, one of the main ones that is that, that would be used in Spain for romesco. But it's helpful to know that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Like, because I'm sure it's just because it's hard to get, so that's been the easiest way to do it, and over time, that's become the de facto way that we make it exactly and that's like the echo chamber i'm talking about. like yeah then we all just are like repeating this pattern that we've observed but it's like who informed this pattern it's not wrong it's not bad there's nothing but it's like how did this come to be and is there more to this story so i really like that kind of stuff you know and then the thing is okay i get it like in the 1980s or 70s or 60s or whenever like you know food media was first publishing romesco recipes, you know, in the United States. I totally get the the move to figure out what's a what's a subs- what's a smart substitution here. Now you can't get Nyora peppers, but you know, you could take a red bell pepper, you can roast it, you get this complex charred flavor. It's delicious. It works, brings the capsicum element to the to the sauce. It makes sense. Now, you know, sort of like the you know, the pros and the cons of like the internet. <laughs> You can buy dried Nyota peppers really easily now. They're imported and you can, you know, with the click of a button, you can you can get them. So then it's like, well, should we still be defaulting to the red bell pepper if we have this option? Maybe if you want to, but like also it's not that hard to get the other one now. So it's cool to try it. Wow, that's going right to like the top of my to-do list. Yeah, you should. I'd be curious to, it definitely, you know, you do it and it's, um, it's not wildly different sauce but it's a different sauce like there's the 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 pepper it really shifts that dried pepper really shifts and what i found testing it because i was like okay well now i've i've made it with the nyota peppers and i have some sense of what that tastes like what would i do if i can't get nyota peppers and what i found was actually like a dried ancho is um a closer substitute than a roasted bell pepper uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I have those in my pantry all the time. Right. So then it's like, oh, there's actually something you might, it can make it potentially a little hotter because some of the anchos have, have more heat. So it's, you know, it's still, it's different, but it's like more and you get more of those like chocolatey notes, those earthy chocolatey, like dried pepper notes that, that you get from the Nyota peppers that I think even roasting a bell pepper, you don't, you get the char, you get that complexity, but you don't get like that kind of chocolate earth sweet concentrated thing interesting and so many people also then we've moved from like charring fresh peppers to just buying jarred roasted red peppers which like moves it even further away because i think when you buy a jarred roasted red pepper they don't have that same smoky characteristic as like a fresh cooked one so we keep like diluting it out over time totally because when you roast it yourself and you rub the skins off but there's little flecks that remain Mm -hmm. and when you get the ones in the jar they've pretty thoroughly clean that off and it's i'm not interested in it in the sense of being like this is the only way to do it this is the right way 
it's more just like, it's so cool to know that and experience it just so that the next time you choose whatever you want to do, but you have like a different perspective on it. I think that's what I like about it. I have a um, quick question from a personal note. So Atole, like I'm really getting into these drinks and I know you have a trio on your website, right? Yeah. And yeah. It, it calls for like using the Maseka, but what if you wanted to use like a regular, like I get Macienda's Masa. Could you, would you use the same amount and cook it the same way? Does it just take a little longer? Like the difference between going from like a Maseka to like a really good Masa. Because I ordered the uh, Chaparrado mix from Macienda. So I'm assuming mm. they're using their, I mean, they're using their good Masa and it takes like 10 minutes to cook. Would you make oh, any God. adjustments? Does their mix also already have the chocolate in it? Like, it is does. It like so you buy it. Ready to go mix? It's fully ready to go. It's got the masa. It's got chocolate. It's got cinnamon. It's got uh, dried chilies in there. And you just add, um, they say, you know, milk or water or a combination. And it cooks up in about 10 minutes. And it's delicious, but it's Ooh. not inexpensive. You know, it's like $12. And, you know, you get like four to six portions out of it. And it's amazing. But I really was interested in. Uh, so I started looking for recipes to make it on the internet and found yours. And then I saw like the orange one. I'm like, wow, that sounds really good. But I have tons and tons of like really good masa in my pantry. I can't remember the last time I bought like maseka. So I was thinking, oh, well, clearly it can be made with good masa. So I didn't know about like cooking times and, you know, swapping out the recipe if you had any insight into that. I wish I had more. I, those Those are going back some years. So it's also my testing memory. Yeah, it was like 2015 or something. I can't believe I had never seen it. Six years. So I don't have a good answer. I mean, so I developed those. And like you said, I did them with the Maseka, which I think is, you know, pretty common, but also is like the, it's, you know, it's not the most spectacular Masa product. And I, you know, there, I think there are people who have, have some real critiques about the brand. Like you could sort of dive into, I don't feel equipped to, to, to represent any side in that debate, but um, definitely like, ma- you know, just looking at something like tortillas, like making tortillas from Maseka is definitely a step up flavor wise from most of the packaged ones, the more mass market packaged ones anyway, if you're not buying some, some more specialty product, but there's whole levels of improvement above that with better masarina product or a fresh masa. And I didn't test at the time with all of, I didn't test like those variations. It's funny you bring it up because I, every once in a while, and particularly in the winter, I think probably within the past week, I probably had this thought <laughs> where I've been like, God, I really should like make a champurado, but like do it with like a fresh masa. Well, I guess I'll just start testing it out. I just don't know what their ratios are of stuff in their mix. So I know like how many grams of their mix per ounces of water like i know for like eight ounces of milk or water this is how many grams i use but of those grams i don't know like what percentage what is, is chocolate versus their masa yeah. so it might take you know i guess i've got some time maybe make it my own little test kitchen project and see but maybe i'll use your recipe and just you go by texture right like you make a batch and if it's you know too thick the next time up the level of you know liquid or my experience with it is that it's the kind of thing that you really can make a lot of adjustments in the moment. Like you're not locked in to, if it's too thick, for example, you're not locked into that, just thin it 
with more liquid. Like I think you can kind of, if you take a certain quantity of whatever you're using for the nixtamalized corn component and you thin it and it's cooking, you know, it's simmering and it's too thick. I think you can just thin it more and thin it more. And you could even probably try to like kind of get that consistency in the zone and maybe, you know, with evaporation and as it's simmering, it might, you might have to make little adjustments as you're playing with it. But then once you kind of get that where you want it, then you could play around with now I'm going to start melting chocolate into it or incorporating the chocolate. And then once you kind of get like the chocolate level where, where, you know, you want it. And, you know, I, I assume neither of us have, a real lived experience with these drinks that was zero. Yeah. I've never had it outside (laughs) of using this mix. So, so the, you know, what's chocolatey enough is, you know, you and I have to kind of go by our, you know, best judgment. And maybe that's maybe somebody who's, you know, from Mexico would taste it and say, yeah, you've really pushed this chocolate too far. Like you got to taste the corn more. There might be some nuance that we're, you know, missing, but, I would just kind of play around with it, I think, and um, get the thickness where you want it yeah. by just slowly adding more liquid until it seems about right. Then get the chocolatiness where you want it and then kind of, you know, season it with the spices. I think you can kind of just dial that in. This one was really good. And I think on their website, they said like someone who worked at Empeon developed the recipe. Like, I don't know if it was their one of their pastry chefs or someone who worked at the bar even. So now that I've had what I think is probably like a good version of it, than I have in my mind's eye, kind of like where I want it to be for texture and, and chocolate. Like it's less sweet than I think I was expecting it to be. So now it's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, I'll try and achieve that. Yeah, it's so helpful to have these data points. And obviously the more one accrues for any given thing in life, the, the more I think that kind of that picture gets filled in and it becomes easier to also decide where on the sort of spectrum of possibilities we want our own version to exist. Anyone can make those decisions, you know, in any moment, but like the, like you're describing, the more you've, the more versions you've tasted that other people make, the more you're like, okay, I'm, I have a kind of new, my impulse would have been to make this sweeter, but I actually really appreciate this version's dialed down sweetness. And I, um, I kind of get that now. Like I, I I see why that's maybe a, a, a good move here. And so then that's going to change how you do it. And if you try more over time, like you get, get more and more, you know, it's who should develop which recipes is obviously a really important question. And it's a, it's one that takes a lot of care because you, you want an informed developer behind any recipe that has a cultural heritage, but you also don't want to pigeonhole people where it's like, well, you know, let's say I'm, I'm a, New York Jew or half Jew, therefore, like Daniel, you're like the, you're the gefilte fish and kugel and bagels guy. Like I'm very happy to be the gefilte fish and kugel and bagels guy, but you know I don't want to only be that guy. And being careful not to channel individuals into just these things, but at the same time having knowledgeable people work on recipes. And so that's something you know I generally try. You know, deciding what's enough experience with something is is. A, isn't I think a pretty complicated question <laughs> um, and not an easy one, but I, I personally try not to develop recipes if I have no experience with something like just for me personally, like if I haven't, 
if you go in my archive, I'm sure you know you will find exceptions to this because I've been working long enough that, that it's happened. But like mostly, if I don't feel like I have that kind of context, the contextual sense at all, I definitely should not be the person doing it. And then deciding what's enough context is is you know that's a lot harder. But you know <laughs> these are these are questions that are not easily answered but need to be front of mind. Yeah, you have a lot of great contributing. Um, people to the website and you know it's good to see that you're leaning on their experiences to bring some of their recipes to the table yeah and that's something that we've um you know in the early days of serious eats there were a lot more contributors but there was also not much sort of quality control in place and so the quality of those early recipes in the early years is is kind of all over the map and that's something that we're cleaning up actively now and then, you know, as, as I think the site matured and we said, you know, well, we, we, need, we, we don't want to have recipes if we don't have a certain confidence level about their quality. We kind of pulled in and started working with fewer non-staff contributors. You know, we just didn't have the resources to kind of do it right. And I'm really happy that that's changed now and that we're pushing back in the direction of expanding the voices on the site and having the resources now to have all of those recipes, both by our staff and by the contributors, be more thoroughly vetted and put through a more, you know, standardized process and not just get published with, you know, which in 2008, in the infancy of the site, like things got published that like, you know, you look, you look at and you're like, and we've removed a ton of that and we're actively removing a lot more of that just because it's, you know, it's, if the confidence isn't there, it shouldn't stay. But I'm really, I am really uh, feel good that we're, we're finding ourselves in a place where this is changing in the direction of more voices, not fewer. And I think that's, that's, that's just obviously better in so many ways and so good that we're able to kind of do it uh, now. So well, thanks so much. I think this has been, we've had a great conversation. I don't want to hold you any longer. I'm probably going to break this into two episodes. Cool. That That's awesome. <laughs> if I have, a, I have a tendency to like digress and go on tangents. So, you know, <laughs> if on a re-listen, you're like, actually, on second thought, this is a, this is a one hour episode. I, and as someone who works as an editor, there's no hard feelings if, if the cutting happens. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I thank you for for inviting me on. It's just great to chat. I loved it. Yeah. I'm glad we could catch up after all these years to have a, not quite in person, but a live conversation, right? Yeah. Let's not make it, you know, let's do it again. Sounds great. (laughs) And to all our listeners, this has been Chris Spear with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.